Hello, everyone, and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. I've had the opportunity to support and learn from so many autistic females, and so often I hear how they were diagnosed later on in life. Sadly, this is the norm as autistic females often get a diagnosis later in life compared to their male counterparts. Marcel Ciampi created the Females with Asperger's non-official checklist in an effort to assist mental health professionals in recognizing autism in females. On this episode of Autism Stories, we talk about this with Marcel and so much more. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Marcy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. How are you today? I am doing great. I'm thrilled that we had a chance to talk. Now, currently, you're the Senior Recruiter and Outreach Specialist for Ultra, which provides highly flexible, high-quality software testing services through onshore teams that include about 75% that's on the autism spectrum across 12 different states. What have you seen has been the competitive advantage of the majority of your workforce being neurodiverse? Well, yeah, we are, we used to be called Ultra as a nickname for ultra testing. It was formerly ultra testing. We actually just recently, in the last couple months, transitioned into from an LLC to a corporation with investors, so now we're actually called Ultramont. So, similar to an astronaut, it's Ultramont Inc., and you can find it on uh, the internet at ultramont.co. And yes, I'm a senior recruiter and outreach specialist. I've been with the company for over five years. And when I first came on, we had, I've been with the company for over five years. And when I first came on with the company, there were five testers, and now we have, we're approaching 55, and in the next year, we are hoping to hire another 50 software testers, so we're excited about that. And one of the reasons that we have a neurodiversity hiring initiative or autism hiring initiative is because there's been research and there's been anecdotal experiences as well that people with a autistic neurology like myself, I have Asperger's syndrome, or I prefer to say, prefer to say I'm on the autism spectrum, is our neurology, in many cases, enables us to find details and discrepancies and errors and patterns. And for that reason, there, there are people who make exceptional software testers it doesn't mean everyone on the spectrum does. For instance, I'm not a software tester. I'm in the H more in the HR field. I'm a writer. It depends on what our natural abilities are already and, and what our preferences are and our experience. But for some of us, um, being in the tech field is a good match. To help your neurodiverse teams do your best work, I read that you've redesi- redesigned so many different aspects of the traditional workplace. Can you talk about some of those aspects and how they've been effective to uh, support your team? Sure. Uh, I was given the liberty when I was first brought on to 
give a lot of suggestions and, and help to largely design the recruitment process. And as an autistic individual, I wanted to make sure that we had the best practices in place, not only for traditional job seekers, but for those that were on the autism spectrum or similar profiles. And so I set about to research best practices and in interviews with people on the spectrum. I wrote about a lot myself on my blog and have LinkedIn articles about best practices. We ensure that the interviews are as objective as possible. We ask all the same questions to the candidates. For our software testing, hiring is a non-competitive hiring. So if someone does well on the first interview and another person does well on the first interview, they score high enough on the rubric. They're both passed on to the next step, which is the second interview. So we're not comparing one candidate to the other, which is nice. It can mean that there's delays in the hiring process. For example, if we have 10 high-scoring candidates, it might take longer to get them into the training period than as if we were just selecting one person. We also have a whole handbook, a recruitment overview that we send out to all job seekers and vocational counselors and those in similar fields helping um, those on the spectrum that outlines and explains our recruitment process from start to finish. So it answers any feasible question we could think that an applicant might ask so they know at the very beginning what to expect and how to prepare. So the way we've made accommodations. We also make it clear that if they need any accommodations during the hiring process, such as having a vocational counselor work with them or contact us or having their interview done entirely through text, that those are options. And we're always looking for ways to improve and, and enhance the process of the best experience for the applicants. We've actually received several thank you notes from job candidates who didn't actually get hired, but thanked us nonetheless because the, they said that the interview process and the hiring process or the screening process was one of the best they'd ever experienced. And, and we pride ourselves on keeping communication open, responding to questions. So often today, if you apply for a job, you might never hear from the company again, or it might be weeks and weeks before you know what's happening. So we try to keep our job um, seekers up to date. Finding employment isn't easy, but maintaining employment is even harder. So can you maybe discuss how your management practices promote that process? We have different types of support systems in place. Our company offers free uh, job coaching through Modern Health. They have, I believe it's up to eight sessions. And if you participate in the job coaching, you get those sessions every um, 12 months, it renews itself. And if someone's under distress and the job coach not notices that they need more than job coaching, they need mental health therapy, then the employee at our company is given the opportunity for free mental health therapy online as well. We also contract out to job coaches who are actually on the spectrum. In fact, one of them is my partner that I work with, J. David Hall. We contract, Ultimax contracts with job coaches that know what it's like to be autistic. Um, in David's case, he also knows what it's like to be a parent of autistic. And that helps with those on the spectrum that 
meet someone at the Kenway Lake that really understands neurology. In addition, we have monthly community meetings, which are um, a time that employees can choose to gather together. It's an optional meeting. And we spend the first half hour talking about what's working, not working, what's working, what's not working at the company, how we can make improvements, what we can do to make it a better workplace culture, and then we have a social time after that. We also have, a, we use a program called Slack. It's an online channel since most of us work from home across the United States, more than 12 states now because we're expanding so fast, and we're moving into Canada as well. And we have different channels such as connected and um, areas where we talk about neurodiversity and such. In addition, we have um, surveys we send out daily, weekly, and annually, soliciting the input from the employees about what's working, what's not, and, and again, ways to make improvement in the company. In addition to your work at Ultranauts, you are also an author of a memoir, Everyday Asperger's. What made you decide to write this book, and what do you hope that people gain from it after reading it? It was a very organic process. I talk about it a little bit in the book and in the blog itself. I had been called. I had a strong faith, and I'd been called to write uh, for many years. Before my first son was born, I have three sons, and my oldest is now 22. And I felt a calling to write, and I was writing my story out, typing it at the time on an old computer. And... That was put aside for many years. It was, I didn't really know what to do with it. I was a stay-at-home mom raising children as I wrote more and more about my life and, and my past. And I just set it aside in, in a closet. And then about eight years ago, when I discovered I was on the spectrum, I started writing again online in a blog about my experiences having received a diagnosis as a phenom uh, with Asperger's. And what I found is there wasn't a lot of information out there and there was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of stereotypes, things that were completely false, such as people on the spectrum can't have empathy, that we can't be in relationships, we can't get married, can't have children. And I had... I have a son, my middle son is also on the spectrum. He had been diagnosed at age five, and so I was familiar with Asperger's, but I wasn't familiar connecting it with myself and, and what it meant. And that blog ended up reaching a lot of different people worldwide. It has over a million hits now um, and became over a thousand pages long. And the book became in existence because some of the community members and readers were asking if they could have something that they could bring to a loved one or a caretaker or a mental health therapist and say, this is me, this is my experience, I want you to know more about what I'm going through. And so I, I took the thousand pages and chose my, my favorite entries and then spent about a year editing the book and then put it out there, and now it's um, in a second edition under Your Stories Matter, and it's available in paperback um, in most countries 
So that's nice that people are available, that the book's available for people who, who would like to have it and, and would like to hopefully have other people understand some of the things that they're going through, some of the ways that their minds work. Of course, mine is only one story and one perspective, but it's a great foundation and launching pad for discussions and for um, therapists and those in similar professional uh, professions to understand what it's like to be a female on the autism spectrum. One of the entries in your blog that I really enjoyed was your non-official females with Asperger's syndrome checklist. Now, you created the the list in an effort to assist mental health professionals in recognizing Asperger's syndrome in females. Uh, There's at least 10 items in each section of the checklist. And we would probably be speaking for days or weeks if we discussed each item in each section. However, I wanted to I wanted to start off by learning what was your process in creating this extensive and impressive checklist? Thank you. Uh, that's an interesting question. So it was many years ago. I don't remember when I originally published it, but I'm going to guess probably six, seven years ago. And now the list is being used across... Um, across the world, I knew a mental health therapist in Ecuador who's actually using the checklist and people in the UK and Australia. Um, so that's wonderful. It wasn't originally written to be shared across the, the world and used that way, but I'm glad it is if it can help someone. Uh, I originally wrote it because actually I meet almost every single thing on that checklist. It's funny because people will write to me and say, oh, I'm like 75% of these. I'm like, yeah, I'm almost 100%. But um, so I based it on me and my neurology and my experience. And at the time when I first found out about my diagnosis, I would go online and they had one or two simple tests. And they were very much geared towards the male experience or towards the stereotypical experience. And I didn't agree with the test. And I didn't think that it really represented my experience or, or other females on the spectrum or even males on the spectrum or those that um, are uh, non-binary or, or don't, you know, identify with a specific gender, and so I set out to make my own checklist that fit my neurology, and little did I know that so many people were going to relate and and connect to it, and what was funny about it at the time is I would share it with some of my friends who who are not autistic, what we would sometimes say neurotypical, as opposed to um, being on the spectrum, And, and, and I just assumed everybody thought the way I thought. And it was interesting to go through the checklist with them and say, no, you know, this is not my experience. And and to re- realize that really I've been for many years living a different type of experience than some of my friends who weren't autistic who didn't identify with being neurodivergent. One, one section of the checklist that reminds me of many autistic females that I know is about escape and friendship. An item in that section that I don't think many people would consider are females that philosophize continually. How do you see that in relation to escape and friendship? I can only speak for me personally and with that, but most of the people I know on the spectrum are very, if not all, are very complex, deep thinkers uh, with multiple layers of self-analysis, analyzing relationships, analyzing other people, analyzing the reasons for things as they are. For example, my middle son, 
when he was around three, two and a half, three years old, he was sitting in the back of our van, our minivan, and he said something to the nature of, Mom, what, what's God? Who birthed God? And how do you know? And I use that as an example sometimes when I'm giving presentations of the, of the ability of the mind of some of us on the spectrum to think at such complex levels. It's not just what's God, who's God, but who birthed him. And when you start to think about that, it can actually hurt your brain and that a small child to be thinking that type of deep question still is very impressive to me. Um, so the, the escapism for me personally comes into I'm getting caught, if you will, in these deep cycles of introspection and why things are in the world, existentialism, and that can bring me into a place of poetry, of writing, of fantasy, where everything else around me disappears, who's in the room, who's talking to me, um, especially my body sensations. I have some chronic pain conditions, so those I will no longer feel that. I'll, I'll be able to escape not only my environment, but my body at times, and be within my mind and within my thought processes. What about for autistic females um, in, the, in their youth, how do you see friendship looking different for them growing up? For a lot of us, there seems to be a pattern where we might fit in and blend in pretty well until puberty. At a young age, most girls like to play and have an imagination and, you know, you're, in, you're immature in a way too and just having fun. Um, not thinking about cliques and popularity and who has the latest hairstyle and who has the latest trend in fashion. and Something happens around puberty where a lot of people who aren't on the spectrum become more aware and more followers of the social, the social um, norms and the cultural preferences. And so in our society, in the United States, what happens is a lot of girls who become teenagers, they start to be aware of those social expectations and to follow those in a very instinctual and natural way, whereas those of us on the spectrum, in my experience, and talking to thousands of other people, and in my own personal experience, is we don't have a natural inclination or instinct to follow the crowd and and to do what everyone else is doing. And so we might be targeted or seen as the, the odd one out or, you know, not following the fashion trends. Um, those types of things can make it difficult. On the other hand, what can make it difficult is having the neurology I do is being very transparent and honest and blunt and not realizing that some of the things I'm saying or even some of the things I'm doing seem unusual and not okay with my peer group who's not uh, neurodiverse, uh, who's not autistic, and not Asperger's, how you choose to identify. And those types of behaviors on my part ended friendships because I might have talked about ghosts or the supernatural 
or overly talked about a boyfriend that I, you know, had a crush on, those types of things, not knowing what the limits were for other people and what was going to either scare people or annoy people or um, cause people to judge me or misinterpret me. In this section, you mentioned several times about imitation. What is the importance of imitation and what types of imitation should someone look for? For many of us, especially girls, um, imitation was a means of survival. Whereas some of the typical things that, that boys or teenagers who are males would enjoy, such as trains or cars or firemen, um, I even know some autistic people who memorize bus lines or, tri you know, those types of things. They're not going to stick out as strange, if you will, is, is some of the things that girls might start to fixate on. Um, so one of the ways I survived being a teenager was having one best friend, and I would mimic how she dressed, how she talked, what music she listened to. I would watch her and the way she interacted with friends. I also would mimic people on TV, soap operas, and um, shows like The Love Boat and Fantasy Island that ages me there. I was trying to learn how to fit in. I was trying, because it didn't come instinctually, the social norms, I was, I, without, without even knowing it, absolutely not knowing it, I would be imitating and taking on someone else's ways of being in hopes of not being seen as, as strange or odd and in hopes of fitting in some way. Um, we can look, as a professional, we can look to see if a young woman on the spectrum or someone in their 20s or 30s, I mean, this can happen your whole life if you don't realize you're doing it. It even happened when I first moved to Washington State about nine and a half years ago and I met someone who was a spiritual um, intuitive and I loved everything about her and before I knew it I was talking like her, dressing like her and I even opened up some more business with her and it wasn't until I realized I was on the spectrum that I was do actually doing these things. I didn't know who I was, what my likes were, what my boundaries were and so something a professional can look for in their client is do they have a true understanding of what their likes and dislikes are what they like to eat and not like to eat, what, how they like to dress, what music they listen to, what are their, what are their strong beliefs morally, and what, how is that manifested in their life, and how do they make their decisions? Do they make their decisions out of something they want to do, or are they following the crowd? Having been able to find myself was very freeing, and I just, I keep peeling off layers and layers of myself. We had a Spectrum Life Inclusion Summit in our home, and we had over 35 people from around the country come to our home for two days, almost all on the spectrum. And I realized during that time together about my food preferences and how I never really identified my food preferences other than I don't like to eat meat. And to the point where it was like, do I prefer blued tortilla chips, corn tortilla chips, you know, yellow, or, or, or we were talking about tortilla chips and all the different types of tortilla, tortilla chips, and I never even took the time, like, what do I like? Not what is everyone else eating, 
what do I like? And so working with a client on what do they like and, and how have they formulated that? Where did that come from? How did they identify their likes and dislikes and their preferences? Um, and to see if, in fact, they did learn some of their mannerisms through mimicking friends or, or characters on TV or fictional characters in books is another common way of mimicking. There's so many of these items, not just in this section, but in all the sections that remind me of many um, females that I know that might be undiagnosed, but I suspect they are on the autism spectrum. With the start of 2020, where do you feel we are now in the process of diagnosing uh, females? I think we've come a long way in the last nine years, but I think we have a long way to go. I still get reports from people all over the world, largely females, that they are trying to get a diagnosis and that the mental health therapist is misinformed and telling them that they can't be on the spectrum because they're making eye contact or because they're dressed well or because they have empathy or because they're married or because they have children. There's still a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of stereotypes. Too often than not, people still picture someone who is autistic as being a Caucasian in their 20s, living in their parents' basement, who only likes technology. And we're forgetting the millions of people who don't fit that stereotype. A lot of females on the spectrum are teachers, are nurses, are counselors, and they're drawn to the service industry. They're drawn to, to helping elderly or the sick or children or pets. And we need to realize that the standards we've been using to identify what it means to be on the spectrum is not, it's not up to date anymore. It really never was. And professionals need to hear from other actual autistic people like this, this podcast that you're creating. Thank you. They need to hear from autistic voices what it's like to be autistic. They need to go to conferences where there's actually autistic people on stage talking about the autistic experience not about a clinician talking about what they think it means to be autistic based on their data, which is based on data that is outdated or research that is outdated or books or stories that are filled with stereotypes. And the more we can embrace nothing about us without us and have the autistic voice be representing the autistic people, the better. And the way I explain that when I'm talking and giving presentations about neurodiversity to um, government agencies and the like, is to think of it like any other marginalized minority or any other minority. If we're going to talk about females at work, women at work, and how to give them more power and engagement, we wouldn't put a panel of men on stage to talk about that. If we're going to talk about a deaf individual and how to give them um, more accommodations at work, we wouldn't put a panel of people who do not have any hearing impairments on stage to talk about it. Same with any type of color or when we think about race, you know, we don't put a group of Caucasian on stage to talk about what it's like to be black. So we need to consider autism not as a, as a deficit and a mental health condition, because it's not a mental health condition, it's a difference in neurology, 
And we need to see it as a minority and give those people opportunity to share their stories and experience because that's where the truth is and, and that's where the stereotypes are avoided. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it and the opportunity to learn from you today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for letting me go on and on. You can tell if you listen to the podcast how um, oftentimes Autistic Mind works as we branch off one topic to another and then we circle back to where we began. So I really appreciate you letting me process naturally with my um, neurology and giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about my story and my experiences. And, and I hope if uh, only one person learns something or is touched by it, that, that's enough. And I, and I hope whoever's out there listening that they know that there's millions of people that are on the spectrum across the world and that they're not alone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And thanks to Marcy so much for the important conversation. Because whether the world means to or not, when describing traits of autistic people, those are traits that are found by observing boys and only boys. Like Marcy said, we have made progress with that, but we still have so much work that needs to be done. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind, and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help their goals become a reality. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself by emailing doug.bletcher at autismpersonalcoach or call or text 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Fergus Murray about monotropism. Talk to you then. Just like you